0: What if I tell you somebody just died? Of course your first thought is who? I'm just trying to make the point that the moment we hear somebody dies, we probably stop for just a moment. And if there's somebody who's fairly close to us, we have a little bit of shock to get over, but probably the thoughts that fill our minds are the life of that person. And once we've settled that, for most of us, our next thought is we jump to the funeral. It's kind of that lost couple days in between hearing about the death of somebody and then the opportunity to gather together to celebrate their life, if, of course, they were Christians, and then thank God for their passing from this travail into the eternal glories of heaven. It's completely different, however, if you are very, very, very close to that person or if, in fact, you are the one who's responsible for what comes next. Unless you've recently had to go through the planning of a funeral, For many of us, that's just something that's not on our radar screens. So what I did was put together a kind of a quick to-do list of things that take place from that moment of hearing of somebody's death, and then that opportunity for us to gather together to celebrate their life. There's actually the two areas. The first grouping up there would be the legal or the real earthly things that we have to deal with, and then the second chunk there is more the spiritual, the religious side of things. Most of us don't really fully realize until we find ourselves in that situation the magnitude of decisions that all of a sudden need to be made. Of course, that's all complicated by the fact that we've just lost a loved one. And so we're going through this emotional roller coaster trying to make difficult decisions. And then if you've got multiple family members involved, that can complicate things too. There's the matter of communication. There's the matter of likes and dislikes. There's a lot of things that have to be settled. And so what a lot of funeral homes have started doing, at least it's been in practice for some time now, is pre-planning your funeral arrangements. You can go ahead of time and pick out your coffin. You can get your burial plot ahead of time. You can get your stone placed ahead of time, and they just will have to come out later and engrave it. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't also take this as an opportunity to put in a plug for pre-planning the religious side of that. I know many of you have heard me talk about this before, and I'm going to do it again. We offer here at Abiding Shepherd a pre-planning funeral guide. And if you haven't taken advantage of this, I would wholeheartedly encourage you to do so. It's nice to be clear-minded, to go through a list of maybe texts or scripture lessons. It's nice not to have a heavy heart, to go through a list of hymns and spiritual songs that we might actually like to be sung or at least listen to at our funeral. Now let's be honest, nobody likes to talk about death or to plan for their own funeral, but the reality is it's always better to actually be prepared. And it doesn't matter how young or old you are because none of us knows what day the Lord is going to call us home. So if you haven't done so already, I would encourage you to come up after the service and not only take a couple of the palm branches, But actually take a look at these. I've got one, two, three, four of them up here. Just page through them and see what it's all about. And if you think you might be ready to start actually pre-planning for your funeral, take one of those home. If all four go, great, we can always make up more. What I'm finding is it's nice when we have the time and the emotional and, if you will, intellectual state of calmness that we can actually make some of these decisions. Now, why do I even talk about these things, especially on Palm Sunday, of all Sundays? Well, it has to do with our lesson, because what I've tried to teach you is just how difficult it is for us to go through these things from an earthly perspective when we actually have time. But what if you don't? What if instead of a couple days, you only have a couple hours in which you have to make all of these decisions and take care of all of these preparations? That's the situation we find in this lesson today, the last of the passion study from Mark's mini-series. And we find two followers of Jesus Christ, not typical people that you would ordinarily think of, finding themselves in a very difficult situation trying to very quickly take care of the lifeless body of our Savior. One of the things that they discovered in serving God, sometimes you have to get a little bit dirty. Oops, there, come on. It was Preparation Day,
1: that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Council, who was himself waiting for the Kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the Centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the Centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid.
0: Okay, it's not a typical Palm Sunday text, I'll I'll grant you that, but it is an important part of the passion history and a part that I personally believe doesn't really get the respect that it deserves. And so I'd like to take a little bit of time in the way that we've studied the passion history this season and actually talk about what it means for the lifeless body of our Savior to be put in the ground. Mark sets the scene for our study today in the very opening verse of our lesson, calling to the fact that it's Preparation Day. Now, in our modern way of viewing that, that's Good Friday. That's the day before that Sabbath. But it's not just an ordinary Sabbath. It was also the Friday before the celebration of the Passover. The parenthetical statement reminds us that Mark was very conscious through the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Roman citizen audience, which he knew would first receive Uh, this gospel. So he has to explain for them what is preparation day. Well, most of the Roman citizens didn't practice, as part of their ceremonial customs, the Sabbath. And so what he's trying to do is set the scene for them. What I've done is actually taken a modern, if you will, timeline of Good Friday events, which not only helps us to do a quick review in our own minds of some of our more recent studies from Mark's miniseries, But it also highlights the situation in which Joseph and then Nicodemus find themselves in. All but Luke record for us that our Lord died at 3 o'clock. We also know from other studies of Scripture that the Sabbath day actually began at 6 o'clock on Friday evening. So that very much isolates for us that there was this three-hour time period, this window in which Joseph and Nicodemus needed to do all of these things in order to properly honor their Savior. ours. One of the things that's very helpful as we set the scene for this and begin to work our way through that day's events is something that Mark writes for us that just doesn't jump off the page. He talks about Joseph going to Pontius Pilate boldly, and we would probably make a couple assumptions about that. You know, these two men had been secret disciples of Jesus, and up until this time were not willing to expose themselves to the rest of the Sanhedrin, basically the group of enemies who were against Christ. We are never fully explained for us exactly why that was and why this moment now in time, but this word as it's rendered in the English might make us assume, well, finally they found the courage to step forward because somebody needed to, or maybe the Holy Spirit gave them an shot of faith where they finally just didn't care what anybody else thought. That's kind of the way it reads in the translation. But it would be important for us to understand that the original language actually has two different words for this boldness. One word talks about what I just described for you, this courage and this willingness to live out one's faith. I need to tell you, that's not the word the Holy Spirit chose here. He chose a different one, this word, telamu, which basically talks about Joseph's mindset was completely focused on the end goal. Now, that helps us to understand he was cognizant of the fact that he did have a very short period of time in which to now do these things. But there's something else, something I think that oftentimes we don't really spend a lot of time considering. Joseph immediately goes to Pontius Pilate to seek permission for receiving Jesus' body because there was another issue that often took place after crucifixions. And that is that if the body wasn't claimed almost immediately, what would happen is the soldiers would take that body down, and since it was a criminal who had been executed, very rarely were those bodies claimed by anyone. They would simply take that body and pitch it into the Hinnom Valley. You might know that valley from a different, by a different name, Gehenna. Basically, it was the garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. That's where all the refuse, dead bodies, all kinds of junk was thrown, and it was constantly burning to take care of getting rid of the stuff as well as take care of the odor and the diseases that would have normally been spread there. Truly, on Joseph's mind would have been the fact that if somebody doesn't immediately lay hold of the body of Jesus Christ, that's exactly where our Savior's body would have ended up. And on the one hand, you might think, okay, well, it's a lifeless body, But on the other hand, it's the body of the Son of God. And there were prophecies that were to be fulfilled concerning this body. And while Joseph may not have been fully aware of those, he does play an important part by the direction of God. And this boldness, this need to immediately take care of this friend of his, he goes to Pontius Pilate boldly. What I'd like to do now with this as the background and setting is simply work through the events of those three hours so you can understand the situation in which both Joseph and Nicodemus find themselves and in an essence we find ourselves oftentimes in our lives so where do we start <clears throat> well the scriptures don't tell us where Joseph was but from my estimation it could have only been in one or two places either he was personally at Calvary and the moment he recognized that Jesus was dead maybe it's according to what John records for us the soldier putting a spear in the Lord's side the sudden flow of blood and water indicating uh, that he was truly dead, or else he would have had somebody else stationed there ready to come to him and report Jesus was dead. The timing was very critical because he was fully aware that Sabbath was just around the corner. So after the report or seeing himself that Jesus was dead, the next thing he would have had to have done was actually gone to the palace of Pontius Pilate. And you might recall from one of the previous studies of the mini miniseries, Pilate, when he was in Jerusalem, would stay at Fort Antonia, which was just adjacent to the temple. That was the safest place in the city for the Roman governor. He would have had to proceed to Pontius Pilate, make the request, and fully aware of the fact that the death would need to have been verified. I find it at very least intriguing, but also... Uh, one of those amazing things that God does, that the very man who had to report the death of Jesus and verify the fact that he actually did die was the very man of our lesson last week who, after Jesus died, proclaimed to the world, surely this was the Son of God. Imagine both the delight and the heaviness of the centurion's heart as he reported to Pilate. Yeah, he's dead the body can be released. And before the soldiers could do anything with it, then Joseph was given permission to take that body away. We also are then told that after leaving the palace of Pontius Pilate, the next thing that Joseph would have had to have done was stop in the marketplace. He didn't want to make any assumptions, so he didn't buy the linen materials ahead of time, but rather after having received that permission, would have stopped and purchased enough for taking care of the burial of Jesus. And that'll become more if I will, specific as we work more and more through this. A lot of times it's misrepresented as if there was this face cloth, which there was, and then just a sheet which was thrown over Jesus. But that's not exactly how Scripture describes the burial of our Savior. There's something else, and Mark does quite a bit of filling in the information. The rest of our information is actually helpful from John's account both of the death and then ultimately what happens next. Because it's John's account that tells us somewhere along the line, Joseph, if you will, meets up with the other secret disciple, Nicodemus. Apparently, Joseph's duties were to get permission for the body and purchase the linens. Nicodemus's duty was to purchase the burial spices. One of the interesting things that John does because he's writing to a different group of people and he has a different purpose in mind, according to the Holy Spirit, is the way in which he records his facts. He doesn't just throw out Nicodemus' name. He reminds us when this discipleship of Nicodemus began at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he refers to that night Nicodemus went to Jesus and had that secret meeting. And that's where Jesus begins to open the mind and heart of one of Israel's teachers. And along the way, these two were secret but dedicated followers of Jesus. The spices that needed to be purchased for a traditional Jewish burial were aloe and myrrh. And so you understand how these spices were used in their purposes. They weren't, uh, if you will, used in an embalming process. They were actually wrapped within the linens as the body was prepared. And the main use for these spices, one was to anoint as a sign of honor, the other, quite honestly, was to keep the smell down because they didn't embalm the bodies. In a, an arid climate like that, you can imagine how quickly the body would deteriorate. So they meet up, then they would have made their way back to Golgotha where Jesus' body needed to be removed from the cross. And I know the video showed them lowering the cross. It's open for debate whether or not that's how they would have done it. At very least, whatever the methodology, there's a part of this that I want you to stop and actually think about and how it must have weighed on Joseph's mind. They're under this serious time crunch. A lot of time had already been spent getting to this point already. Now they're facing removing the body of Jesus from a cross. Besides the fact of how you do that, how do you pull nails out of a dead man's body but to do it gently, and carefully. There must have been this mix of emotions. I need to hurry up and get this done, and at the same time, I don't want to do anything to harm or desecrate this body. I also wonder if there weren't moments where they both just had to stop, probably because of the emotions that they were dealing with, and why they wouldn't have fully embraced what all was to follow. Here was somebody that they cared very much about, I can imagine these two grown men trying to unlatch this body from the most torturous form of execution, having to just stop and take a break to deal with the emotions and maybe the tears as they're trying to get this body ready for the tomb. John fills in another piece of information here which is very valuable to us and quite honestly becomes the easiest part of this process, is taking the body to the tomb nearby. It was in a garden very close to Calvary there. And what made it even more convenient was is that Joseph owned it. He didn't have to stop and get permission from anybody else. John also offers the detail that it was a brand new tomb, or at least I should say it had never been used before. So it was all ready to go. All they needed to do was get the body there and prepare it. And those preparations meant wrapping it with the spices. And then normally there was a bench within the tomb where the body was laid, and it would stay there and stay for a period of time and after decay. Eventually, in a normal situation, those bones would be removed and then put into a hole in the wall or some area there where generation after generation of people would be stored. There's something else, though. There's the securing of the tomb after this was all done, and this stone was already ready. So I don't know if that's ever pointed out that much when we get to the part where the Sanhedrin leaders go back to Pilate and go, well, they're going to steal the body. We've got to make sure nobody gets in there. It was customary to have a rock to put in front of a tomb in those places, partly because they didn't want wild animals to get in there and chew up the body. And I would think also in this situation, because Jesus was so publicly hated at this point, Joseph and Nicodemus both realized a good heavy stone in front of the tomb would help keep anybody else from getting inside there and disrespecting or desecrating Jesus' body. Okay, so basically that is what took place from 3 o'clock to 6 p.m. on Good Friday afternoon. And I know Good Fridays are typically spent us focusing and concentrating on the sacrifice Christ makes on the cross for us, and we should, but then we kind of stop there with our thinking process. We forget. There was a whole lot more that had to happen Friday afternoon, which then led into Saturday, which ultimately sets the stage for Sunday morning. In fact, there's a lot of nagging questions that even Mark's account, even supplemented with John's, doesn't answer. I'd like to just have you think about a couple of these yourself. No one here where, and here do we hear anything about the women, other than the fact that they observed where Jesus was laid. But I don't know if you ever thought about it, and sometimes as important as what God has put into Scripture, also as important as what he doesn't. We never hear about these women leaving the cross or Calvary, unless one of them might have been the one chosen by Joseph to come and report the death of Jesus. As far as I can tell, they stayed there. For those three hours after the six hours of crucifixion imagine that taking its toll on them both emotionally and physically and yet because it was their Savior who they just witnessed die and whose now body needed to be cared for they are willing to do that but did they serve more of a purpose and I think sometimes that's overlooked both the staying there at the cross But then ultimately, I want you to think about this, and it's part of the setup for Sunday morning. They recognize that even though Jesus was buried in accordance with Jewish burial customs, there was something that was left undone. And it wasn't the wrapping of the body. Joseph and Nicodemus did that. And it wasn't the spices. There was something else that needed to be done. And why I want to focus on this is because what we're dealing with here today is the final step of what we call Jesus' steps of humiliation. The things that the Son of God needed to suffer on our behalf as the sacrifice and payment for all of our sins. And while we focus at the cross and we should, this also is humiliating for God himself to have to take on our flesh and blood to become one of us in order to make payment for us and then ultimately to have that perfect body entombed in the womb of the very planet that he created for us. He originally created for us to live perfectly forever. Mankind destroyed, thus necessitating everything that God promised and fulfilled ultimately on this day. There has to be a lot more to do with this burial of our Savior's body. And probably the best way for us to understand that is to see it from the viewpoint of a, what I would simply refer to as a traditional Jewish burial. What I'm about to show you has its roots in the time of Jesus and how they buried bodies there and then ultimately goes all the way back into the Old Testament. It was centuries and millennia of tradition that lead to these preparations.
1: In Judaism, traditions around death have two purposes, to comfort the living and to show respect for the dead. This respect starts well before the funeral at the moment of death. It is traditional to never leave a body alone. This is called shmirah, guarding the body. Volunteers from the community, or people paid by the funeral home, sit in a room next to where the deceased rests and traditionally recite tehillim psalms or study other texts. In the old days, shmirah was meant to physically protect the body. Doing shmirah today is a way to set aside time to remember the person without the distractions of work, children or anything else. Tahara, the ritual purification of the body, is done by the Hevra Kadisha, a burial society found in many communities. They come together to recite the prayers and perform the following acts. First, they physically wash the body. Second, there's a spiritual cleansing. Some dunk the body in a mikvah, while others will pour water on the body. In the final stage, The Khevra Kadesha dresses the body in garments similar to what ancient high priests wore. They are dressing the person to go before God. Many people doing Tahara for the first time go into the room thinking, I'm going to wash a dead body, and it's going to be a challenging experience. They come out thinking, wow, I understand what death is now. I've washed a body. When I lifted up her arm, and then let it go it just fell back down i've held her i've turned her for so many it becomes a spiritual experience to leave the tahara room and see the world completely differently and know what it means to be alive it is a powerful thing for those who do this holy work it is traditional not to talk about the tahara with the family but the liturgy traditions create a bond, a strong tie that builds community. It goes beyond how the water is poured, how the Psalms are said. It speaks to how we respect the deceased, comfort the living, and at the same time experience the effects of this spiritual and life-changing act.
0: See, what I find interesting is our American customs with burial and planning for the funeral actually has us focus a lot on life, and and that's okay. But the traditional Jewish burial, the items that our Lord's body would have gone through, really forces a person to stop and contemplate death. You see, of these two parts of the preparations, the Shmirah, I believe is what the women did, staying at the cross for those extra hours guarding the body. That's part of Jewish tradition. Besides the fact that they Dearly loved their Lord. There was an obligation. There was a responsibility. Somebody needed to stay with this lifeless body. Which then helps us to understand maybe their thoughts and thinking as they watched the body being buried, the Tahara never happened. At least we don't hear about it. And if you think about that list of what I've just gone through of the day's activities, there would not have been time to properly wash. And anoint the dead body of Jesus. It seems to me that what the women contemplated needing to do on Sunday morning was not necessarily to bring more spices. After all, they had 75 pounds there, didn't necessarily need to be wrapped because somebody had failed to do that. What was not accomplished was the Tahara. And so, as good traditional Jewish women, they found themselves in the position of somebody needed to complete the burial process. And that's why they headed back early Sunday morning, in order to honor the Lord. And yet, we find difficulty in John's record of the wrapping. And I had uh, intimated this before. It wasn't just one quick sheet over. Part of the time crunch was also they actually wrapped the body in strips of linen. Not mummification, where it's the whole process, but each limb would have had strips wrapped around it, and then ultimately... The whole body as well. And that's why the resurrection and the leaving of the burial cloth is so impressive. The face napkins separate, and the Lord would have simply come through the wrappings. He didn't stop to re-wrap it all up. But it also indicates for us that Joseph and Nicodemus had to get a little bit dirty burying this body of Jesus. After all, it was all bloody. Certainly had been sweaty. Surely it was probably dirty, if not simply trudging through the dirt on the way to Calvary, the dust and the grime from carrying the cross. And yet they considered this a labor of love to properly pay respect to the physical body that had housed the Son of God. It's not just that it had to be done. These two men wanted to do it as a sign of respect and a way to honor the man who had given his life for them. There's something about this burial that I think maybe we haven't truly appreciated. And that's why I really wanted to take time this year and today to stop and consider just how unclean these two were willing to get. Because the physical dirt part of it isn't the problem. It's the spiritual part. That's why I had that lesson from Numbers See, what we often overlook is the fact that they were willing to put aside their religion and the observance of their religious traditions in order to pay proper respect to Jesus. Because what they did on Friday made them unclean for Saturday. Not the observation of the Sabbath, but the observation of the Passover. By burying Jesus, they could now not participate in the single highest festival within the Jewish church year. And Joseph made himself twice as dirty as Nicodemus, whereas the religious leaders were too pious to go inside the palace of Pilate in order to get this man condemned to the cross. Joseph boldly went in to ask for his dead body for proper burial. Imagine doing something like this. Service of God and you don't get to celebrate Christmas. You do something for the Lord's honor and Easter is off the table. You want to honor God in maybe the last possible interaction with his physical nature here on earth and every celebration that means something to you. Seeing your family, eating with them the most important meal of the year is out the window. And yet these men were willing to get that dirty in order to take care of this body of Jesus. Why? And why doesn't it hold that same height of importance to us? Because this burial is important, and I think we often overlook that. You know, every time we are reminded of the day that God adopted us into his family through baptism, or every time we are privileged to gather here to witness another child of sin... Transition into a child of God, we forget that that act actually places us within the tomb of Jesus. We get to go with Nicodemus and Joseph and the women, and through baptism, we get to be empowered to actually live. You see, it's baptism that connects us to the body of Christ, it puts us in that tomb. And within that body of Christ, we find the fullness of God. And within that tomb, we find that Christ is given to us. You see, what Joseph and Nicodemus don't fully realize is they bring full circle the plan and promise of God, that he would send his son into human flesh and blood so that he could suffer under the law and ultimately pay for our sins through his sacrifice. I find it interesting that the church fathers found it important enough to include it in our creeds, and was buried. But there's no special service for the burial of Jesus. We celebrate him becoming flesh and blood. Christmas, a lot of time and energy is put into that. We also celebrate his resurrection, his lifeless body returning to life. We'll have that next Sunday, Easter. In fact, we even have all kinds of celebrations for what comes before, Holy Week, And again, we'll do that this year with the celebration of Good Friday and our contemplation of giving his life on the cross. But why didn't they ever stop and go, you know what? We need a Saturday service. We need time for us to actually just stop and consider what it means for the Son of God to be dead and his body placed in a tomb and what that means for us in our lives. Because it's Paul who reminds us, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. I don't think we think about that on Saturday between Good Friday and Sunday, but we need to. Because much like Joseph and Nicodemus, we stand there looking at death. And it appears to be hopeless. After all, the Son of God is dead. And yet that dead body is more than just a reminder that it is God living in the flesh. And that flesh connects directly back to us. You have the fullness of Christ. Basically meaning that you have to step outside of the tomb and face a broken, rotten, disgusting world. And it wasn't just the sacrifice on the cross that empowers you to do so. It's that dead body lying there as the testimony of God's love that helps you face the day. I don't know about you. I feel like we're in the same situation as Nicodemus and Joseph. Oftentimes you look out your door and it feels like it is kind of hopeless. After all, the harder we work, the more we try to share God's love, it seems like the devil redoubles his efforts to make people not only not want it, but to actually hate in exchange for it. How hard is it to actually share with the world the one resolution, the one solution to the world's worst virus, and they don't want it. You want to talk about anti vaxing It's the world despising a God who made them and loves them. And what are we to do? Except visit the tomb of our Savior and remember that within that body dwelt the fullness of triune God. Because he took on human flesh and blood, he's more than just connected to us, but he fills us. Your baptism proves it and guarantees it. And so you can leave being able to face the world that hates him and ultimately you. The challenging thing about death, from our perspective, is that it feels so final but it's not. Jesus' death shows us that. And even before Sunday morning when we gather here together to sing the Easter anthems, the burial of the body of our Savior tells us we have reason to rejoice. Because for that resurrection to mean anything, that death and burial had to first mean everything. And so it gives us the courage not only to face whatever this world might throw our way, but it actually gives us the ability to choose to serve God, even when it's not easy to do, even when it's the most difficult thing to do. We get to praise and thank a God who gave his life. His dead body attests to that fact because he loves us that much. And that body, having possessed the very soul of our Savior, gives us both the hope and the courage to now live and serve Him. And I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes to do that, you've got to get just a little bit dirty.
2: Since the beginning of time, God has been pursuing mankind. His pursuit is steadfast and unwavering. His love is resolute. unmatched. From the moment of our first breath, we have all been searching for hope. In every human heart, there is a longing for true purpose and meaning. There is a sense that we were meant for more. Our city is filled with people searching for truth, searching for answers. These answers can't be found in quick fixes, self-help books, or our limited ability to understand the meaning of life. Eternity is within us. The kingdom of God isn't a place, it's a people who are pursued by their creator and are found in the midst of their searching. You see, where the pursuit of God and the searching of mankind collide, there is Jesus. The bridge to the one true God, Jesus, the beginning and the end, Jesus, the perfect example of perfect love, Jesus, the one who loves us in spite of our failures, takes our worst and gives us his best, Jesus, the way, the truth and the life, the one who broke the chains of our sin, the one who has the power to heal and restore, the one who defeated death and rose victorious on the third day, Jesus, No other name is higher, no other name
0: is greater, no other name than the one we celebrate today, Jesus.